Hi, everybody. My name is Christian Cisan, and I'm a partner here at Lois Law Firm to talk to you about evaluating exposure in New York workers' compensation claims. Now, what we're going to do today uh, is going to talk about uh, not only how we do it, but when we do it. And when we go over how an attorney reviews a case for an exposure analysis, we're going to talk about several decision points within a claim where an attorney should be providing analysis related to future exposure. Now, as it relates to New York workers' compensation, there are jurisdictional peculiarities such as schedule losses of use and losses of wagering capacity. And when we have those cases, we are designing what the case is going to look like when the case reaches maximum medical improvement. Now, along the way, there are going to be things that change the value of the case, uh, but of course, we are evaluating exposure, meaning present tense, and consistently, because every option to revalue the case is going to give you more information for your purposes and how we litigate, when we litigate, and how aggressively we litigate. Of course, if any of you have uh, seen this webinar series before, then you'll know that this is a live presentation and that you can ask questions using this field on your screen. Uh, those questions will come to me in real time. And if we have enough uh, time at the end of the presentation, I'll answer them uh, live for you today. So the overview, right? Sometimes we have to think of the compensability status of a case first. And when we talk about whether a claim is admitted or denied, first, it might be easier to talk about denied claims because we're always assessing legal and factual defenses, whether we're settling this claim or whether we're litigating this claim. So to, to bring that into our evaluation, we're going to talk about the successes and the the success rate of those defenses and how much evidence we have to present to the judge. So, for example, we can wait to a tr for a trial outcome and give you a settlement analysis, but we think it might be better for you to get that settlement analysis before the trial decision is made. It's going to incorporate the risks and benefits of settling before a compensability decision, but it's also going to allow you to think about what the settlement analysis could be if the compensability decision is made in our favor or if it's made adversely. Now, alternatively, in an admitted case, we're not necessarily pursuing litigation of certain defenses. Now, there may be defenses like labor market attachment, fraud, and the like, but if we are accepting the compensability of a particular accident, we want to reduce exposure more generally. And that means litigation of lower issues like average weekly wage, prior injuries, and the indemnity and medical exposure that is associated with those topics. So, for example, if an average weekly wage can be reduced through the use of a more proper application of section, one, uh, section 14, then we want to litigate that issue because it has a direct effect on the wage replacement benefits that we're going to proje be projecting into the future. The same thing happens for prior injuries. Many times we think of them in the apportionment sense, but for example, if we can litigate fraud over the failure to disclose prior injuries, then it drastically reduces the indemnity value going forward. 
And in admitted claims, we also want to talk about risk transfer. Risk transfer is something that we take um, a lot of pride in uh, assessing for our clients here at Lois Law Firm. And that's because a lot of the issues that we face within the context of the claim itself are impacted by things that are outside of the litigation of workers' compensation in New York. And we talk about things like loss transfer recovery via arbitration. We talk about uh, subrogation of a claimant who hasn't filed a third-party claim. We also discuss the recovery and how you can protect uh, your rights going forward in the claim to make sure that you get the maximum amount uh, allowable under Section 29. And all of these values that come in can affect our decisions in the present day. Putting that all together, we now have a settlement analysis for an admitted claim or an established claim after a denial is not successful at the trial level. So let's talk about a denied case, right? We're initially talking about the status and how compensability has not been determined. But when we talk about our factual defenses, we are discussing the ability to produce credible evidence from lay witnesses. Who witnessed the accident? Is he or she credible? Who completed an incident report? Was it the claimant's supervisor? Are they credible? What type of factual defenses can we present to devalue the initial settlement exposure relative to a claim? And when we think about this, we're also thinking about the chances of success that defense will have at the trial level. We're also taking into account legal defenses. So when we juxtapose those two together, think about a coming and going defense. If a claimant were to say that he uh, was conducting duties in the course and scope of his employment, irrespective of where or when he was traveling, then we may want to present factual defenses, meaning testimony indicating that this claimant was not in the course and scope of his employment. Contrast that with legal defenses. Think about your Section 28 defense for an occupational claim. If the claimant has to file his or her claim within two years after he knew or should have known that the injuries were related to employment, then the assessment of the success rate of a Section 28 defense will have a marked ability for us to settle, right? If we know that our Section 28 defense is solid and bulletproof, our settlement value goes down. On the other hand, if we think it's not as strong, then maybe the settlement value goes up. We're always talking about where the case is venued and who the judge uh, is assigned. And a lot of times this may not be as relevant in a virtual hearing world where we can't predict all the time which judge is going to be hearing our case. But it's still relevant in the context of a case that has protracted litigation. So for example, in a denied claim, a judge that sits before us in a pre-hearing conference is going to be the judge that takes testimony at the trial, barring an emergency or advance notice given to the parties. So knowing who that judge is and the predilection that he or she would have to a particular defense is built into our continuing settlement evaluation. The same goes for who our adversary is. Knowing who our opposing counsel is on the other side of the table, their strengths and weaknesses in litigating this particular defense, and 
the particular representative that they send to the table is going to be very, very important to us because it's going to know, it's going to let us know how to focus our litigation, but also prepare you for how we should value the settlement. When we finally get to trial, we talk about our factual and legal defenses uh, interplaying with one another, but it's going to be the witness credibility that we present that puts it all in a nice platter for the judge to disallow the claim. So that involves getting in touch with them as early as possible, introducing who we are so that we're not a stranger and that we represent the employer and carrier together in a case that will ultimately be disallowed by a neutral and objective law judge. If that trial does not succeed, this is now another decision point for us to revalue the claim but it doesn't have to always omit post-trial actions. How have we moved the case? Well, we have an option to appeal if we have the adverse finding on our side, or do we devalue a settlement if we are successful? Well, naturally, those the answers to both those questions would be yes, but what we also don't want to lose sight of is that a denied claim that is now established now gives you opportunities for risk transfer. So. Talking about those things that uh, discussed on the previous slides, such as loss transfer and Section 29 reimbursement, these now become palatable for an increased settlement value that would otherwise not have been there in the first place. If we compare it to an admitted claim, right? we talked about how the primary need is to reduce, exp reduce exposure that we concede is already available. right? So. Average weekly wage and priors were one of the first things we discussed. And I talked a little bit about how prior injuries can be useful for apportionment, but it also can be useful for litigating fraud. Now, on one hand, we can have a case where a claimant has a prior injury to a similar body part. And we can devalue a settlement if we can argue that the residual disability is not all related to our claim. That goes for pre-accident range of motion testing. That goes for pre-accident surgeries. And when I say pre-accident, I mean our accident. And it also goes to fraud, right? There's a, a material obligation of the claimant to disclose prior accidents and injuries to similar body parts to us, to our IME doctor, to the board. And when the claimant does not engage in this obligation, gives us an opportunity to create chaos and the litigation that we need to devalue the settlement. In doing so, that reduces the value of indemnity and medical. Eventually, it has to be a strong defense that will force the claimant to come back to the negotiating table, which will in turn reduce the value of indemnity and medical. But even if indemnity and medical can't be reduced through the use of litigation leverage, Valuing indemnity and medical based on what projected permanency will be is always helpful because now we have an endpoint of when we expect MMI will occur, the amount of time it'll take for us to get to that point, the cost of indemnity and medical until we get to that point, and now the valuation of future indemnity and medical once MMI has been reached. So putting that all together gives you a customized settlement analysis you're going to be able to reduce or increase based on these decision points. Now, in an admitted case, we're still assessing who the judge is, where the judge is located. It may not be assessing them 
for their ability to overturn compensability or to disallow a claim or to allow your witnesses to testify credibly, but it may be on other issues. For example, if a surgery is that issue, what is the uh, judge's predilection for authorizing or denying this particular surgery? In this venue, what are the judges doing in particular that would cause you to think there may be a change in your litigation success rate or your practices? Those are the kind of things that along with the assessment of opposing counsel, we are still valuing into our claims. So for example, uh, a particular adversary may never want to settle until the claimant has exhausted his surgical remedies. Well, sometimes knowing that gives us that information to tell you that settlement is impossible, or it may give you other settlement options. For example, if surgery is truly a barrier, can we value the surgery into a settlement analysis? Those types of things that we're constantly preaching, constantly doing to revalue settlements with these decision points, hopefully give our clients a more informed basis with which to work. And now we talk about uh, you know, risk transfer when a denied claim becomes established. It still obviously is an issue for admitted claims since we know there's gonna be an exposure reduction. Post-trial actions are also there. And that is based on those little uh, leverage points that we have in litigation such as litigating surgery, litigating degree of disability, labor market attachment, apportionment, all these issues that are still relevant to us and can reduce exposure. We want to pursue them so that it creates the opportunity to get settlement leverage to our reasonable value. We always know that especially once a claim is established or accepted, that claimants attorneys will typically increase the value by making up or asserting some fact that has not yet occurred. And it's the litigation leverage that you will use to rebut that potential. If we have our settlement evaluation and we talk about the decision points that are going to be uh, occurring throughout the lifetime of, of a case, we're eventually going to get to permanency if the case can't be settled. So how do we assess that exposure? Well, for schedule loss of use body parts, we're mainly dealing with range of motion. Special considerations will apply to either give a baseline or a ceiling as to what that percentage is. But in large part, we are going to be using medical reports to determine compliance with the permanency guidelines. So an objective goniometer is typically used to measure the loss in range of motion based on what is considered full or normal. Essentially, what has the accident done to a particular limb or extremity that we can safely attribute to the work accident? Once we do that, we are able to now assess an additional thing, which is the credibility of that doctor. How many times has this doctor testified before this particular judge in this particular venue? How many times has this doctor found incorrect applications of the guidelines? Or maybe this doctor is actually very credible and we should consider settlement at close to that level knowing that the success rate of our litigation is going to be very low. And one thing to keep in mind when we're talking about SLU, schedule loss of use, is the exposure may not necessarily incorporate a protracted healing period. So the table we have listed here on this slide 
is for the normal healing period for each slew extremity. If we were to take the arm, the normal healing period states that an arm injury should be healed in 32 weeks. So if the claimant, before reaching permanency, is adjudicated with more weeks than 32 at total rate, a judge could find that he has a protracted healing period, which would take the excess weeks at the compensation rate and add it as a value to a slew finding. If your claimant has 35 weeks of total disability and the arm injury is the only body part established, then we can safely assume that three out of those weeks, because 35 minus 32 is three, will be added to schedule loss of use exposure. Other than that, some of us are very, very well settled with what the equation is. We're taking the average weekly wage, we're multiplying it by two thirds, and then multiplying it again by the slew percentage to come up with the exposure based on the weeks associated. So the percentage of the slew is relative to the total value of a slew if, for example, the extremity has a 100% finding. Many of our clients have this problem where cases will resolve on a slew even though the claimant did not lose any time from work. But even if the claimant did lose work, we want to focus on what we can do to move forward and bring it to an amicable re resolution. So we talk about what we want to send to our independent physician. Well, our evaluator can surely review a cover letter, but what is involved with that cover letter should be specific and targeted. Meaning, what types of questions are asked of this particular IME doctor to locate certain reports? to review specific findings made by a judge? What about non-medical documents such as incident reports or surveillance video? Maybe you try to litigate fraud and even though it doesn't rise to a material misrepresentation that is worthy of an indemnity disqualification, you may wanna use the surveillance video to attack the idea that permanency is related to our accident. Keeping all of this in mind, we still wanna make sure that we are not prepping the IME doctor. We are presenting them with a neutral and objective viewpoint of what the case is about, and we are letting the IME doctor do the work to get us to that medical finding. It's important that we do not instruct the IME doctor to make the findings that we ultimately want. Loss of wagering capacity is very, very different. Now we talked about a schedule loss of use case involving the measurement of the loss of function in a particular extremity. What is different about loss of wagering capacity, it involves non-schedule sites, right? Your neck, your back, any kind of psychological condition, so on and so forth. But it goes along a, a pronged analysis where the first prong is the permanent medical impairment. So if both sides produce an impairment rating, we are assessing the credibility of each side and the success rate of having that report be deemed more credible than its counterpart. But the second prong is often overlooked and it's the functional ability of this particular claimant. Think of exertional capacity. 
how long or how often can a claimant lift, carry, push, pull, sit, stand, walk, run? And what, what of this is related to our accident? Because functional ability is something that may be tested when a claimant has a temporary degree of disability, but it's actually required to be assessed when determining loss of wage earning capacity. That leads us to our third prong, which is vocational factors. And we know of many clients that are upset about this particular prong of LWEC because it is something that we simply cannot prevent. If we have a job that's fit for a particular uh, set of skills, then we always think that it's going to be unfair to be punished in a workers' compensation arena for, a claim, for that claimant not having other sets of skills. Nevertheless, loss of wage earning capacity is an assessment of the claimant's ability to earn gainful employment after the accident. So then the board, unfortunately, takes these into account. And what we need to start doing is knowing this from the get-go. If we have a back or a neck claim and we cannot effectively uh, bring the claimant back to our employment, then we have to start considering those litigation leverage points that we discussed earlier, knowing that vocational factors is something that we cannot prevent and will increase the value of a settlement down the road. All of those prongs assessed to give you a value and if that value is not palatable to us or the claimant and the settlement is not reached, we're going to get a loss of wage earning capacity ruling signaling the eventual end of the case. I've talked a lot about uh, venue and opposing counsel and uh, in particular for admitted or denied claims. And one thing that's always refreshing uh, for us when we do this is sometimes firms bring in different attorneys. and you may not be associated with that particular attorney at this particular firm, but maybe you might know them from that firm. And that, because of that, it's constantly important to know where you are and who you're dealing with. The judge and the venue is most important to your ability to determine whether these facts and legal defenses will succeed before a particular person even if it means you're ready to appeal, it's that little bit of customized analysis that will allow you to make a more informed decision. There are some judges that are particularly ignorant of the permanency guidelines. Conversely, there are some judges that apply it very well. So knowing that and knowing where you are is going to impact how you really value a claim. Your experience with that particular adversary who's going to sit across the table on that very same issue is similarly important. And then we get to risk transfer. Uh, I briefly went over some of those topics, but our main area of concern is the potential for a third party action. And while it is important to aggressively defend compensability, it is a nice, safe harbor to know that there is a liability claim on the third party side and the civil side because it projects a higher floor of reimbursement coming back to the file. A higher floor of reimbursement means a lower ceiling and we don't have to necessarily worry about a $250,000 section 32 settlement 
if we're going to get $200,000 of that money back in a recovery situation. That situation may involve your typical reimbursement under Section 29, meaning that's uh, that, that case ha is handled as it, uh, in, in its due course. A settlement offer is presented for us to consent to, and we make sure that your rights and benefits are preserved in the recovery of that reimbursement. But a little known aspect of third-party recovery involves subrogation. Think of your unrepresented claimants or your cases in which the third-party attorney is having trouble locating a tortfeasor. We act here at Lois to make sure that your bottom line is affected by these issues positively. So we can subrogate the claimant's interests by filing the requisite documents, getting the process started, so you don't lose that right to be reimbursed in the future. So how do we do this? Well, it's a little bit different maybe from other firms, but we like to project to you within seven days of the file being referred that you get our initial analysis. And in an ideal world, we're giving you everything that we discussed today. That's an assessment of the success rate. That's an assessment of the indemnity and the medical, the prior injuries that could lead to litigation leverage, all tidied up so that you can value the claim accurately. We also want to do this during the case lifecycle for you because of these actionable points and these different moments in a case where the value goes up or down, it's important that we provide you with this analysis so that you're not working with an exposure projection from long ago. And because we have uh, a few more minutes, I'm gonna go to the questions. Right? And Stephen asks, how would you relate a prior injury to reduce exposure that is not a work injury? That's a good question. Thank you, Stephen. So really what we're trying to assess, first, if we can apportion it in the most technical legal sense, right? When we're saying that uh, the prior work accident was related, so I want to take 50% of my 20% slew and say that's related to the prior accident. It's not as clean and easy if it's a non-work injury, but it still has some impact. What we want to think about is what were the findings related to that prior accident because it impacts the causation of issues to our accident. Think of your prior knee injury. If the claimant has post-accident range of motion for a motor vehicle accident that occurred five years ago, meaning that his range of motion could only go to 120 degrees. That is the standard for which the loss of range of motion should be measured against when conducting schedule loss of use examinations. We're not comparing it to a full 180 degrees of rotation because the claimant never presented to us on the day of the accident with that ability. He had 120 prior. So you're reducing exposure and mitigating risk, but not necessarily in the way that the law intends, because the law is saying a portion to a prior work injury. You're using the prior work injury to impact causation. 
Okay, looks like that's all the questions we have for today. Uh, I want to thank everyone for attending. Again, we title this um, webinar Evaluating Exposure because we're continuing to do so on a life cycle of the case and not just at one particular point or not just when we reach permanency. Uh, but for everyone who attended, I do want to thank you. My name is Christian Cisan, reminding you to defend from day one.